What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. As a very little child, Mariam Issa dreamt of travelling to far away places. What she did not dream is that she would need to one day flee the horror of Somalia's civil war on an overcrowded boat to Kenya. Nor did she dream of the violence and bombing she witnessed, or of her beautiful close-knit family being torn apart and displaced to far-flung foreign countries. One of those countries was Australia, where she arrived 25 years ago, fresh out of a war zone with four young children in tow and pregnant with her fifth. What she found when she was settled as a refugee in Brighton, Melbourne, was a culture she did not understand and another world entirely. In this conversation, we meet a wise and reflective Mariam, now an empty nester, divorcee and no longer wearing the hijab that defined her for so long. Mariam shares with us the peace she's found when she sits in the sacred silence where the waters of her two worlds collide, the practices she lives by to ensure she lives and breathes her top three values, and also invites each of us to take off the masks we hide behind that disconnect us from ourselves and from each other. Above all, Mariam shares her story with deep and abiding gratitude, recognising and celebrating our shared humanity with the beautiful African phrase Ubuntu, I am because you are. Here's our chat with Mariam. Well, Mariam Issa, great to have you here with us in conversation today. You were born in Somalia in 1968. What are your earliest memories of your life there? Well, I lived in Somalia for only four years, but my earliest memories, which is not a good one because I had um, female genital mutilation at the age of four. So that was a big memory for me and one that I, carry, I carried for a long time from Somalia. Wow. And where you lived at that time, uh, was it a, a village or, or a larger city? It was a town, actually. The second, I think the second largest town after Mogadishu. Mogadishu is the city, capital city of Somalia. So Kismayu is 500 um, kilometres away from Mogadishu. And it's a big, a big city as well. It has uh, an amazing river called River um, Shabele, which means leopard, the leopard river. I think there was a lot of leopards around that area. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how many, you, how many siblings are in your family? Um, my mother had nine, so I was the second youngest. Right. Yeah. And the practice of genital mutilation, that is just part of the practice that was in the 60s in the area. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, I think it's still practiced, not as much as it used to. And there's a lot of education around it now. I've done a lot of advocacy when I came to Australia around it. And I feel like people are getting out of it. 
uh, and my family definitely has got out of it. Mm. I was the last, you know, that's, yeah. Mariam, it's hard to move forward with other questions and a sense of curiosity about your life when you share something so personal and so painful and so traumatic in the first few minutes of us having a conversation with you. Is there anything else that you can share with us that will help us understand the impact of genital mutilation on you as an adult and how, how has it informed your life so far? So I think in the early years and having my children, I really did not internalize it. I did not work through it and I didn't realize even it did have an impact because it was something that was practiced as, as a culture, was never talked about. It was just kind of a taboo subject. Uh, we never visited it. And just after coming to Australia, having had my all my five children is when I really and I think it I started to question it not because I was looking at it, but it came through a time when I was dealing with a lot of things. So a whole country had disintegrated right in front of my eyes. I had I became a refugee. I had been displaced for eight years before I came to Australia. So you know, after the settlement, I think two years after the settlement, the September 11 happened, and then another upheaval started of being, you know, uh, Muslim in, mm. in the West as well. So that also brought a lot of questions. So in the navigation of these upheavals and adversities is when the genital mutilation came up for me. Mm. And I started to really deeply question it and to go back into my feelings and I don't even think that I did go back into my feelings because I didn't do any therapy but just the the, the sitting in meditation and contemplation and the writing of my book A Resilient Life prompted me to really understand at a deeper level the you know the pains and what it carried with it mm. yeah and for our listeners who know nothing of your story, um, you arrived in Australia, what year? I arrived in Australia in November of 1998. Mm -hmm. And I came with uh, a husband, four children, and I was pregnant with my fifth child. Where did you come from? I came from Kenya. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I came from Kenya. I was 30 years of age. And yeah, I was just kind of starting a new, I was excited actually. Tired, but also excited that we would. <laughs> Tired, <kind of laughs> preg pregnant with four pregnant children. And having been displaced before, you know, uh, having children in, you know, uh, refugee uh, status was not an easy journey. What did you think you were going to arrive to? Well, I did not have any expectations. But I came, I was a very lucky refugee because I came through the family reunion, which meant that my ex-husband's family was here. And so when we came, we were actually transitioned very easily into uh, the system. So it was not as bad 
and then the kids had to go to school. I'm going to challenge you on that in some way because we know now there's been so many horrific stories mm-hmm. of refugees coming to Australia and um, not transitioning. Well, I mean, so just horror stories galore, really. We know mm-hmm. that um, Australia has not done this mm-hmm. well at all. So I wonder how much when you share your story that you came through um, the family what, what's the process? Reunion. Family reunion process yeah. through at the, your, your now ex-husband's family. Yeah. It'd be tempting to look at that time and say, we had a smoother transition, transition. Yeah. than many refugees who followed, perhaps. Totally, totally. However, this was your experience. And at the time, did you have a sense of other refugee experiences in Australia? Did you have a sense of gratitude where the lucky ones no, it's only in hindsight. Yeah. Because I have worked with refugees. Yes. I have visited refugees in camps, uh, especially the Broadmeadow camp. Mm-hmm. And I have worked with, you know, a lot of refugees. I used to work as an interpreter mm-hmm. and especially with uh, health professionals. Mm-hmm. And I did see the upheavals and the hardships. And, and that's what I think made me feel that I was very um, lucky. Although I think in my nature I am, you know, uh, I, I, I love gratitude and yeah. I appreciate a lot. Because yeah. I think in life when you have seen contrasting experiences that were really heavy experiences and you come into, you know, an easy kind of lifestyle, you kind of, yeah, look at the two and go, wow, you know, I'm really lucky yeah. to be, yeah. Yeah. And a huge juxtaposition between a huge one, yeah. Where you know what you came from, and then you landed. Uh, I've heard you talk before and share the story of where you were first given housing was in Brighton. Yes, which is a world unto itself, uh, as we know. What was that like? Those early days of uh, you know being suddenly catapulted, yeah, <laughs> into another planet. Into another planet. It totally was another planet. For our <laughs> listeners who may not be Melbourne-based, Brighton is a very high socioeconomic suburb of Melbourne. It's Bayside near the water. I think it's known to have its own little cultural bubble perhaps. Mm-hmm. So, Mariam, you and your four children and your then-husband and your pregnant tummy arrive in Brighton <laughs> and what happens? Yeah. By the way, I still live in the same house that I came to and... Um, I think some, this is where we say ignorance is bliss <laughs> <laughs> because I did not know what Brighton was at the time and only after our next door neighbour installed cameras in his house did it occur to us that wow you know these people are really scared and uh, one evening he came to our house and knocked on the door and said your children's ball is in my courtyard and my, my dogs dig I don't like that. Could you not make them do that again, please? And by the way, my name is John. I'm your next door neighbor. Mm. We were watching mm. neighbors at the time. Oh. Yeah. How did you deal with that? You're trying to manage that change yourself with being in a whole new environment and culture and trying to parent your, your four children and another one on mm. the way. How did you personally find the strength yourself to to manage all of that Mm. i think it's just survival you know you just survive in in that space and you you know every day comes with its own you know 
ups and downs and it's one day at a time but i think you know in when you're in that space you don't even think about uh how am i surviving how this is all in hindsight and it's a story that we have you know i have processed and i have you know i look in you know in hindsight and go wow you know i did that well or i could have done that better but in the story you don't know this you are you know you just in the experience uh-huh. and you're going through it and as a mother i don't even think that you have time for that yeah. yeah so with five children and packing their lunches and for them to go to school and making them look good because you know they they the only black children in a classroom and it's like you know polishing them in different ways and going wow you know you have to be part of you know this so it's just surviving and keeping up with you know the culture and i didn't know much about the culture that's why i say you know in that time i learned that culture is a currency and we came with a deflated currency nobody know, knew about our culture so we couldn't buy anything in in brighton with it and the irony is the culture that you're given as well you trade with it very you know awkwardly because you don't know it so we were at a loss both ways and it's just i think after my youngest who was born in the heart of the community reached kinder and the september 11 my kids were in islamic school that i feel the trajectory of our family changed because at that time you know i took sara my youngest to kinder because i thought you know she's only a 4 year old and she won't feel what you know the older children were feeling so she didn't need to be in an islamic school so i'll just take her to the kinder and also kinder is just a few hours so the commune would be easier on me so we visited a local kinder and nothing bad was really said but the reception was very frosty and when we came out her question was the one that really opened my heart and she said mom did they not want me because i'm black mm. and at that moment i felt the loss of the innocence of my 4 year old i felt the fear that i was harboring in my heart and that's i think when i made the decision that i need to do something about this mm. yeah you talk of you said i realized when my neighbor told you that your ball was not welcome in his yard that you sensed his fear again is that a statement in hindsight or at the time did you sense fear or maybe judgment i sensed a big disconnect because that's not what i thought a neighbor would come <laughs> and, and you're watching Ramsey Street at the time i know <laughs> i know and it's it's i was like what is he talking about you know the crazy thing though we do have these fears but the, the universe is an amazing account you know keeps accounts really well and a few days later john's children's ball was in our courtyard mm-hmm. and my children were very excited to go and see john's big double story house and i said no you send you know throw the back the ball back and just from that simple interaction you know it creates a neighborly communication and a disconnect and a dis- yeah mm. yeah does john still live next door to you no john moved but we did become um you know just a 
We were good, not, I wouldn't say good neighbours, but we were t- on talking terms when he left. Mm-hmm. So You talk, Mariam, about this idea of the currency of culture and that mm. you couldn't trade yours. Mm. When you first arrived into this very different culture, what parts of the culture you had left behind, uh, how much of that did you try to carry into your new life here and uphold for your children so they were still connected to their own culture? Most of it. (laughs) When you come as a migrant, and I think that's what sometimes holds us back as well. I was, when Sarah voiced what she voiced, some of my contemplations around that was the fact that, you know, I was living in two worlds. So I was thinking, oh, one day when some, you know, home was okay, we will go back home. So I wasn't living fully in this community. And so that's what I realized. And I think it made me re- also make the decision to bring back my children to the local schools and, and, and fully commit to being a community member and understand this community at depth. I think it just, she planted sort of a seed in my head of going, this is not what I came for. This is not the life that I would choose for my children. I don't want them to look over their shoulder and feel that they will never be part of this community. So for, for that to happen, as a mother, I had to, you know, stand up in courage and do what I needed to do. And I think my curiosity helped me with that because I became very curious about the Western woman. <laughs> so you, you're sharing that you made a deliberate choice. When mm. you felt lost between two worlds, you decided this is the world we will choose to inhabit, to engage, to be curious around. What happens to the old world when you choose the new world? It doesn't mean that you let go of the old world. You know, there is a beautiful uh, verse in the Quran. I come from the Islamic traditions and it, the word that comes to mind is barzakh. Barzakh is, it says that the two oceans, the salty water ocean and the freshwater ocean, where they meet, there is a barzakh. And the barzakh is the, you know, the fish that comes from both sides cannot straight away go into the other side. They have to acclimatize in the barzakh. So it's a space of acclimatization. And so I think, I feel that that was what was happening. It was the space of acclimatization, the, the, the space of acceptance. You know, you grieve and then you come to this space of acceptance. And once you're in that space, then you can transition to the other world. And it doesn't mean that your old, you know, world is completely gone, but it means that you're fully committed to this new one and that you can now take and shed and leave what you don't want and swim between two and worlds and swim between the two worlds so, so it sometimes is it is a bit exciting to have that you know to have that acceptance stage because it's like a lot of heaviness you know kind of let's go but still you you have a, a, as mothers we always have guilt but this was a a bigger one because you know you've come to a new culture you want to educate your children in your islamic values you want to teach them your language so we have you know i had extra work to do so i could not just allow them to just be in this world and swim in the ocean you know and freely so there was still a bit of restrictions in the sense of 
when it comes to holding on to values mm. that were ours. You mentioned before this idea that you didn't fully commit to being here really, this idea that mm. you would someday go back. Mm. Um, what does home mean and where does home feel like for you? Wow, that is actually a question that I had been, you know, asking myself for many, many years. Because, you know, coming, you know, as I grew up in Kenya, so I am Somali, and my mother always, you know, I feel like I sort of have the same journey as my mother, because she came to a new um, environment when, you know, we were young. And so she never let us one minute forget that we were Somalis in the new culture. And the new culture that we came to was an indigenous Swahili culture. Um, the native Giriyama who were in the coastal parts of Kenya. And their culture was totally different from the Somali culture. And their religious style, like they were pagans, like very indigenous, earthy people, whereas my mother came from the Islamic traditions. And this, the women in this culture did not even wear to a top, so their breasts were exposed. And that was shocking to my mother. And for a long time, we were being separated. We were behind closed doors from this culture until, you know, a few years. So I feel like I've been kind of seeded with, you know, and prepared at a very young age to have, you know, the, the, the experience that I had in, in, in Brighton. So your mother, your experience of arriving, I'm thinking from the Somali, Kenyan, New World, Old World, when yes. you arrived in the New World, you didn't fully immerse in the Kenyan ways. No, not not my family. Your family. You know, children straight away do. Children are curious. They don't care. And they're very but, adaptable. And they're very usually. adaptable yeah. and very easily. Although my mother was also of the nomadic tradition, so her adaptability and resilience was immense. So she did adapt very quickly. But I think it was much quicker, actually, that I would say than myself. Hmm. Because I feel that for me also it was sort of operating so much from the head because I'm Marida and, you know, education kind of tempers with our intuition. So my mother was a very intuitive woman. So the minute she felt intuitively that she was safe, she, she, adop she adopted to the, you know, to the community. It wasn't as hard for her. So tell us more about that intuition, not just with regards to where home is or culture, but head versus, head versus heart. heart. Yeah. So head versus heart. I think with the heart, you, you know, with the heart, it's you feel. You feel and, you know, you're, you feel a sense of I'm safe, I'm okay, you know. Um, then that's where ex I th feel like sometimes curiosity and being able, you know, to connect comes from. And I do have a lot of that, but also I'm, I was also strategizing and thinking and going, what if this goes wrong or what if that goes wrong? So I was using the head as well. So sometimes when we overdo the head, then we're not grounded enough. So I feel like because we were living in uh, in Kenya where we came, it was like a village kind of life. And people were really grounded because they were very in tune with nature. And coming to Australia, it was 
different. I wasn't in tune with nature. I wasn't going out as much. As much as I live very close to the bay, I was afraid to go out. And also the fences and the, the disconnection fences. between, the sounds like the community was absent. Absent, there. yeah, yeah. So here with my mom, like the minute she arrived in Kenya, the chief called her and gave her a plot of land and said, cultivate this for your, for, for your children. And she refused that because she didn't trust this new culture and she didn't accept it. But even when that happened, you know, we weren't excluded from the harvest. Mm. So every time that the, you know, the local women were harvesting their, from their land, we would get, you know, um, part of that harvest. And so in Brighton, you started to create a garden. Yeah, I, I created a garden in 2012. Uh, so 2012 was an incredible year for me. So I became an author of A Resilient Life and I started Raw Resilient Aspiring Women as a not-for-profit organization. And, you know, my mother was also a storyteller and every time, like, you know, she always told stories in different contexts. So what led me to start, I think, the community garden was from one of her, you know, anecdotes. She would say, you know, if you can host someone in your heart, you can host them in your home. Mm. And what she meant by that is that people will wrong you. You have to forgive and let go of grievances and allow people in your heart. And if you can allow people to be in your heart, you can then invite them into your home. And I think I took that very <laughs> seriously and opened my home as a community garden. And how did you establish that garden and, and then encourage people to come and join you in your harvest? Yeah, I think it was just a leap of faith. I did not know what it was going to be like. I just had this faith of I, I want to bring women together because at that point I had seen, I had interacted with the Western woman, I had seen how the Western culture was and I have a contrasting culture and I realised that women in any culture was going through, you know, uh, a lot of suffering through the patriarchy. And I then wanted to create a space, a safe space for women to connect and to create community. I do believe that we as women are the conduits of compassion and the wombs of creation. So when we come together, incredible things happen. And when we sit in circle, I feel like we can heal the world because the world is going through what it's going because of the disconnect of women from her power. As a mother of sons as well as daughters, you, not me, <laughs> I only have daughters. In fact, we both only have daughters. I wonder how you share and express and live some of those sensibilities and beliefs with your sons. With my sons. I was talking to Abdul, and you know Abdul I Sabina. Yeah. Um, the other day, I was, you know, he really made me emotional because he was asking me about intuition. And he said, Mom, I believe in intuition. I know that you've been talking about it a long, you know, for a long time, and I sense it now. And he was asking many questions around it. And I think, you know, you live it 
that's how you can be a, a role model. Mm. And by living it and by communicating it, I have never stopped communicating um, the the power of intuition, the power of connection. So I go out there and my children listen. I mm. mean, you know, just you do what you need to do. And it can that message can be for them, but it can be you know you don't have to. I don't think words teach. Mm. Words don't teach. What teaches is life experience, and in the way you embody that, in the way you talk it, in the way you you know use it in your life. Mm. Like do as I do as I do, not as I say. Not as I say, and uh, yeah. So as mothers, I think we you know. We, we do say, you know, do this and do that. But still, you know, we are a good example for our children hmm. because we do it. And when we talk about the patriarchy, I, I have a, well, I guess many would agree or believe that we need men on the journey. So that's why I was thinking about you as a mother of sons as well. We need to not fight the patriarchy just as women mm. but to engage men in the in the experience in the as experience. well and particularly as a parent mm. but i'm even thinking about the patriarchy as an archetype you know healing it in our hearts mm. and i think in our dna mm-hmm. i think the wrong that has been committed against women is a dna that a lot of women carry and some of the things that we carry might not necessarily even be ours. It could be our great-grandmother's sure. story. So what I have done as a gardener, I planted trees, actually, to heal the patriarchy. And the organization that I have you know, created in my backyard is called RAW, R-A-W, which stands for Resilient Aspiring Women. But if you read RAW backwards, it's war. Mm. And I saw the, the name in a dream. And what that specified for me, the raw, is that the, the war we carry is the war of the patriarchy. And we have to let that war go. When, it, when we heal the patriarchy within us, then the world outside of us is healed. And so now I have a lot of incredible community men working with me. And so I can see how... I'm, you know, that is healing around me and my, I'm making real connections with my brothers and, you know, a lot of things are happening around me as a symbolism of that. Mm. So it's incredible. What are your thoughts on intergenerational trauma? Because you just talked about your great-great-grandmother and perhaps some of the wounds you carry are hers mm. or, or the generations before us. Mm. I really believe in that and there's a lot of trauma that we carry and if, if not processed... Can, you know, we can keep carrying. So as a storyteller, I understand that a story is a way of expression. It's a way of exploration, but and, and a way of integration as well. So what happens is that we explore and express, but very rarely do we integrate our stories. And I think for me, because of the adversities that has happened, I sat in the discomfort and integrated my story. And I think that's when a story transforms. Integrated the story into yourself. Into self. And, you know, the things that come up, you know, we numb ourselves. We don't want to sit with pain. So a lot of things, and especially trauma, that, you know, comes if you're not processing it, if you're not sitting with it, if you don't even are aware of it, then it will always be there. So you'll have triggers outside of you, you know, 
of this and one you know my therapist what she described for she's i call her my therapist but she's almost like a guide for me and she said mariam you know in your body you have it's aligned mind and every time that you're triggered you know a mind goes off what you can do is you can heal this or extract the minds or you have another great option you can there's another path that you can go with no minds and you can choose that so i call that the you know the choice to thrive mm-hmm. you can go on the path with no minds it sounds it's like so you incredible. have thrive i mean you know incredibly complex and difficult path but that somehow you've been able to reach out with your heart to community and build uh, all these opportunities for people around you do you think you were not serving yourself in some ways through that and that you were reaching out to everybody else but but you weren't getting what you needed i think i was but with the lined mind i was stepping on minds unknowingly and then things would explode. So every now and again I would be dealing with something. But now when I was doing therapy it was like you can choose a completely different path. So for me it's now it's like you know you can heal and choose to heal those traumas and of course we have to but you can actually transform the story when you integrate and go okay this is what has happened. So what I did was to really reconcile myself with my my lineage. And one of the things that came up is the rejection of the lineage because you rejected the, the, the a lot of and the lineage was on my father's side it's the patriarchy and so when all those things come you just go into a disconnect and so when i realized that i started connecting with my ancestry and i planted a tree a tree of respect and reconciliation and reverence so i I allowed them to know that I revere them and I respect them and that you know this story can end with me and that my sons and their sons can heal from this. So it it was an incredible, you know, um connection and after that I actually was inspired to to plant a tree for the indigenous people whose lands we really um trade from and uh you know custodians of so i planted a tree for for the patriarchy of that culture and i also planted a patriarchy for for the white culture which you know i'm interacting with and i'm living with as a community and are now part of my friends so it's it's a system of healing but it's healing with intent and knowing that you know that we're not apart from life life and death coexist and when you're in a garden you really know that mm. but even in our african culture we be- we don't believe in death we believe in the continuation of life and i believe that these ancestors are with us and they they do know what we are doing and they're here to support us with that and incredible things started to happen in the garden so a lot of activities and a lot of people are coming in especially men so it's it's incredible what what can happen so sometimes the mind rejects that and it's a woo woo thing or it's that but in our cultures we believe that it is it is it that the la- you said i choose n- no landmines yes is is it you choose no landmines or do the landmines still exist 
but you're not triggered or hurt by them. Yeah, uh, you, you're not triggered and hurt by them, but you also don't go there. Like if, you know, something is not of value to you, you don't have to go there. And if, you know, the people who are hiring around that, you know, you lose in this journey, you become, you know, once you're, you're healing, a lot of things change in your life. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, we love familiarity. Yeah. And we love to keep people that are really toxic around us just because of that familiarity or their family or their this. And so sometimes you have to choose not to go there mm-hmm. and to let go. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the, you know, the line minds. You have to let go of the things or the people that you cannot be around because we are human at the end of the day, you know. We cannot force ourselves to, to love someone or to be, you know, comfortable with people that we're not. And what's an example of that in, in your in your life more recently? Um, my ex's family and him as well, like the whole, f- yeah, we've mm-hmm. lost the whole family. And it was a choice. They we, all live in Melbourne. They all live in Melbourne mm. and we've got nothing to do with them. And I think what that taught me as well is that family is not just biological. Family mm. is beyond blood relations mm-hmm. and you can choose your tribe and your family. What year did you separate? 2018. Hmm. Yeah. And can you share some of that experience with us? Um, it wasn't actually, it's it just that the, the marriage disintegrated and I chose to let it go. And yeah, and those are the kinds of things like, you know, once it's it's done, I just, you know, I wanted to concentrate on my family, the children, and healing and building new foundations mm. because those foundations were built on, you know, a lot of um, heart and a lot of, you know, um, cultural baggage. So I wanted to let it go. Mm. Yeah. We will have many people listening who will be thinking about their own significant changes, whether mm. it be a relationship, a job, um, a country move, mm. uh, many different life, significant life changes. Mm. And you have such wisdom and a beautiful way with, as you've expressed so eloquently, gratitude, curiosity, a gentleness, and also a strength in the way you live your life. Mm that I'm deliberately pushing a little bit when you say, oh, I, I just made a choice because it didn't serve me well. Mm. Was it that easy? No, it was <laughs> not. It was not that easy, actually. I think, you know, what really clarified it for me was COVID. Mm. Oh, COVID. So I sat in the discomfort of COVID and I hated the, you know, the, the mask with a passion. And I was like, why am I against the mask that badly you know and it so turned out that I've been wearing a lot of masks metaphorically that I had not addressed and then I started journaling and finding out some of those you know masks and it's very painful when you say when you're making a decision for instance when I made the decision to take off the hijab 
Mm. So I wore the scarf when I came to Australia and for a long time. And, you know, it is my cultural pride, still is. But I felt that actually my hair thinned and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't wearing it for the religious kind of purposes that some Muslim women do, you know. And for me, I felt that, you know, my spirituality and my Islam were connecting. And I felt that actually I don't have to wear this scarf and I don't need someone to tell me what to do as in kind of theological I knew how to you know I read the Quran I knew what my you know what was needed of me and if I was doing it I wasn't doing it for spiritual reasons so why was I wearing the scarf why was I burdening myself for it? so I let it go and some people might interpret it as like, oh, you know, when you left your, you know, your husband, is that when you left? And no, it had nothing to do with him. And all of his sisters actually didn't, his family didn't, you know, practice that, you know, strongly Islam. So it wasn't about that. It was just me addressing those masks. Mm. And it's incredible when you really sit in these spaces of, of you know, sacred silence and you start to contemplate and you start to live life from a place of value. So one, some of the things as, as well that came, you know, with cl that were clear to me was to live my life with um, values, non-negotiable values. And I really was like, if I was going to have three values that were non-negotiable, that I would practice every day for myself, what would that be? What was the catalyst for those? What did you read or who did you talk to before you chose your three top values? values? Oh, I do a lot of leadership courses and I am part of the IWF, International Women's Forum. And of course, you interact with amazing and incredible women and you hear of values and we talk a lot about values actually in the Western um, space. And I don't think I understood it. You That's know, why really I, want well. to, I want to unpack this yeah. because, again, you know, you're sharing, and I, I, I see so much universality with all of our guests and in the way that I see the world. I, I see the similarities, not the differences. So you're, you're sharing a story that's very foreign in many ways but so similar in mm. others. So I want to pull those threads mm. together. Mm. We all talk about values. We all know that values are a roadmap, that yeah. if we follow our values that they will be a guide to the way we live, the choices we make. Mm. But how, spe I'm drilling down, how yep. specifically, well, share with us your top three values and then tell us how you actually arrived at those because it's not drive through McDonald's and fries mm. with your order. No, no. <laughs> and it's not either sitting in a leadership course and being told these are the values you can choose from and then you're given 50 values that you can point on and go, okay, I, I like this one and I like this one. And as we said before, words don't really teach mm. and words are not actually that valuable you know valuable if they don't have any significant um experience behind them or if they're not actively mm. or, felt. Know, or, or felt or lived, yeah, or lived, lived values lived mm. values and felt values yes. you know so yeah i felt that i was actually you know sitting in that discomfort felt like everything for me one has disintegrated because I was sitting at the discomfort of having let go of a marriage of 32 years and my all of my children were adults. 
So I was an empty nester. And this was a time where I felt, who am I? You know, I've come back to that circle of who is this woman? You know, who am I? Because I'm not, I don't have the roles. Everything was stripped. And so I was bare. Mm. <laughs> and that's when I feel like these values came in. And one of the values, the first value that is absolutely not negotiable for me is connection. Mm. So I, connection, it starts with, with myself. And so that means that I, every morning before I even do anything outside, I have to really connect with self. And we talk about self-love. We, have, we talk about the self and the ego. And there's a lot of stuff that we talk about. But this is actually about sitting in, you know, in your prayer mat and just really connecting and feeling the essence of who you are. Without a board, if I were to die right now, would I die really? You know, would this essence disintegrate and disappear? So when you question, hard, you ask hardcore questions like that, you go into a very, very deep place. And sometimes that place has no voice, has no words. And I don't even think that we can interpret it into, you know, we can only interpret it in the words that we know as you know and that will make sense to us but it just is a place where there's no words as that yeah so it starts with connection with, with self with which is hard to hard to explain isn't very it? hard to explain yeah very hard to explain but is familiar it's the it's the truth your truth yeah it's the real truth in, in the West, and you've talked about you're curious about the Western, you know, the Western woman and, and the conflict, I suppose, between the, the two yeah. cultural currencies. And we know in the West there's almost a hyper-obsession with the individual mm. um, as opposed to the community. Mm. Do you see a conflict there, I suppose, around um, mm. the individual asserting their right versus trying to expand to be part of a collective and community? No, I don't think there is a conflict. Actually, it's really important to know yourself individually, know thyself. You know, know thyself, yeah. Know thyself. It's so important that you know yourself. And I think for me it was even more important because I come from a communal culture which did not encourage uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Mm, that's it, what I was wondering, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you've come yeah, from... Yeah. But yeah, our yeah. culture is skewed the other way. Correct. Which is yeah. what I mean. Yeah, there's about a the real conflict. different uh, yeah, yeah. call to serve others rather than serve yeah. self. Or, so yeah. ours is a dependency culture. Mm. And the West is an independent culture. So, but when we put the two together, it becomes interdependence. And interdependence is self-actualization. So I was very lucky in the fact that I came to an independent culture because it taught me that. And so once I got the independence and I got the, I already had the dependency, then my, it was, yeah, easy to transform my story into that you know, interdependence. And then it became, you know, I understood the word Ubuntu. You know, the Ubuntu word is the the word of the oneness Mm -hmm. that I am because you are. Mm. There is no you, there is no me. So that talks about both. I am because you are, you know. So it's a place where there is an interchange. 
but there's also I, you know. So it's, it's so important that we know ourselves. And in knowing ourselves, we can create our boundary. We can know what, you know, we want in this life. We can create a meaningful and, you know, fulfilling life in a sense for, for ourselves. And when we do that, I think, you know, we kind of have, you know, because we do it, we, we have an overflow which then feeds the community. So when someone doesn't know themselves, they're almost like, you know, there's no sufficiency. There's, it's not sustainable. Mm. And, and almost a burden on a the burden community. A burden on other, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you would either have dependence or inde- inter- I, I would choose maybe independence. Because at least that person can, can exist but I think when you do not have that and you just exist, coexist with others, then it's that's where some of the, you know, in our African traditions and world, I think that coexistence allowed us to let go of who we are and the colonization and the taking on other people's stories. And yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a deeper story, but it kind of like, goes that direction mm. yeah so connection is your number is your number one connection yes. with self and, and connection other, with others yes and creativity so i realized that if i wasn't creative i wasn't living i was just life that was just existing you know you didn't have much meaning so to create for me is so important. Is that in your garden or creation? In yeah, anything, or, anything. Yeah. You know, we're all creators, and every day of our life, we're creating. You know, we're we're the ones who are actually holding our steering wheel, so to speak, and mm. we we are in our lane. You know, when you're driving a car, you almost like you know so focused. Otherwise, you're going to impede on other people's. You know, and 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 you can cook you can cause a lot of destruction so creativity allows you to hone your your you know you, you you have a focus and you have an ability to make something of every day mm. yeah so you create and 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 that i say it's in in storytelling because we we're the shapers and molders and designers of the story we curate it we you know, every now and again, we look at ourselves and go, oh, I would love to do this. And so that's what our desires and our contribution even to the world is comes from that creation. Mm. Yeah. And your third, your third value is? My third value, which honestly, I didn't practice a lot is celebration. You did not? I did not. You do now? I, I do now. I celebrate everything. <laughs> what, what do you I mean celebrate. you didn't celebrate? I didn't celebrate my birthday. I didn't celebrate, um, you know, my achievements. I didn't, you know, yeah, I wasn't a very celebrative person. Did I was you celebrate? always looking for the next thing, yeah. Were you celebrating in other ways? Because, again, these words have so many layers. They and have so layers many and layers. But I think for me what I, why I chose it was to really – to save a life mm. to save mm. i don't know if i'm saying it in the mm. you know um to save a life mm. like it's not save a life to save save to save to save a life mm. yeah and to have like once you know when i'm celebrating i feel like wow you know it it has a depth of um 
one it's about it's it's encouragement and validation of our egoic you know so self. you're talking about celebrating you celebrating me but also if you're celebrating someone else as well you mm. know so celebration yeah it all starts with me mm. yeah celebrating girlfriend. yeah <laughs> celebrating me first and then celebrating i think when i celebrate myself well is when i can celebrate others well as well what what do you most celebrate about yourself what can you hand on heart say i am proud most proud of myself oh i am totally proud of just being in this room with you two beautiful women whom i actually cultivated a relationship with yes. so i celebrate that and yes. i adore you too and it's so incredible that you can come into a community that you knew no one and then you can make a ma- great friend. Yes. So I have incredible friends. So I celebrate my friends. So that's connection. That's connection. And creativity. And creativity. They're all good bedfellows, they aren't they? They come together. They're all together. They all come together. <laughs> and yes. celebration. And celebration. The, and, and it's three Cs. It's so powerful. Yes. Mm. And I do that every day in my garden. Like I celebrate people who come to in that garden as well like you know we had an intern um a few years ago who came to the raw garden she was a young woman who chose me to be her mentor mm-hmm. and she's of a Sudanese background and she said Mary I don't have a job I want to come and you know intern in your garden and she was doing her masters and you know so this young woman had two children and she just felt that she was doing an everyday job but after she left us she realized her worth mm-hmm. like she was an incredibly resilient but also very purposeful woman mm. that she's she was raising two beautiful sons she was you know she had just finished her masters in covid like we literally celebrated her and the community around us so we have a table in the raw garden where every tuesday different women from different backgrounds come and we talk to each other and 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 that celebration we celebrate each other we celebrate with food with drinks and so it's incredible and you're an empty nester and we will put your details we will put the details of the garden, yeah, the garden and yeah. um the tuesdays in our show notes too yeah. um as an empty nester now what what next for mariam wow you know i'm so excited i feel I feel at the moment that I'm a little bit still in the barzakh. I'm really I think something incredibly fascinating is coming on. I'm writing at the moment. Yeah, my second book and I um I'm feeling that you know with my life's journey and experiences and almost kind of like um going into into elderly like you become an elder mm. and sit in your kind in your, of in your sovereign wisdom. in your yeah. wisdom and sovereign chair and <laughs> and support others you know through it but i do a lot of i i do a bit of coaching as well but i think like literally i want to do something in just people have now finding me instead of me going out there mm. to just sit and i have created the throne i have created the space so i'm going to allow people to come now 
from the salt water from, and the fresh water. From the salt water and the fresh water. <laughs> and yes. And just, you know, swimming. Swim. Between, uh, swim, swim I'd, I'd love yeah, to yes, swim to that place. That yes. sounds like a cool place to, to swim totally, around. Totally, um, yeah. I love this notion you talked about of Ubuntu. I am because you are. And yeah. I think um, sitting here with you and having this conversation, there's just so much richness in your story, in your sharing. So mm. thank you for being so open-hearted with us today. Thank you, Madeleine. Yeah. Mariam, we like to end all of these chats um, with our guests by asking the same question, and that is that in with all of the life that you have seen and experienced, both the hardships and, mm. and, and the thriving parts, who do you think is doing human well? Who do I think is doing human well? Hmm. I think we are all work in process, mm. in progress, and doing human well requires a lot of patience and a lot of connection and I think a lot of compassion. And one such woman for me that I know who in the early days really supported me in my journey and is totally human for me is Mim Bartlett. Oh, yes, Mim. Yes. And she is an incredible guide in this world. Mm. She supports women to really go through their dreams. And the amazing thing about Mim is that, you know, she was coaching and mentoring me and I didn't even know. <laughs> she would just, you know, um, pull me into her circle and her space. And she held me tight when mm. I really needed it and in my most vulnerable time. So she is my human. Mm. Thank you. I was with Mim last night for, for dinner. I will relay that to her. And for anyone who doesn't know, well, there'll be many who don't know Mim who are listening, who um, she has an amazing program called Change Up, which I know yes. you've done and I've done. That is a personal and professional leadership program so if you're interested in hanging in the aura of Mim Bartlett you could check out Mim Bartlett consulting and change up um mm. you don't get a set of steak knives I've just given that a big plug yeah. but the way that you you shared that mm. I know that will pique some people's interest who is oh, this absolutely. woman you speak so glowingly of I also have done change up so we're all yeah, we're all graduates we're all of the great. program and mm. I think we have to choose our human from our you know our local communities Hmm. because we are in this journey at this moment together. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.